Hello, hello, hello. Welcome in, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Nonprofit Insider Podcast. So good to have you here. August 30th. Laps, was it? Second? Yeah, August has 31 days. Second to the last day of the month. Um, and now we're in September. Once you get to September, that's the time. Listen, kids are back in school. Families are back to the routine. You know, a couple, a couple of trips here and there. I, I'm going on a trip here in a little bit. I'm actually uh, going up to Denver, going up there for the annual uh, Colorado Conference on Volunteerism through the Directors of Volunteers and Agency, the DOVIA with the CCOV, a lot, lot of acronyms. You know that in any industry, you're going to have acronyms, but it feels like the nonprofit space, definitely a lot of acronyms. Uh, I'll be there here in about a week and a half, September 6th, 7th, 8th. For this conference, so if you're in Denver, let me know. It's going to be at the Botanical Gardens. If you're going to be there, uh, you know, follow us. Follow us on Instagram. Hit me with a DM. Let me know you're going to be up there. We'll try to link up, and I'm, I think I think I might. I think I might do a surprise rapid reaction from from the conference. I think it's going to be a really good conference. Uh, probably, I think my first conference pretty much since COVID got started. So it'll be a really good opportunity. I'm gonna take the take the gear up there. Take the nonprofit insider podcast gear so i can do a little bit of recording while i'm up there be sure like i said be sure to follow us on instagram we've got a good one today um here in about 10 minutes or so i'm gonna talk about clicks in the nonprofit space uh clicks can kind of serve as like more of a slang term but uh, i have some thoughts about that after talking to a buddy of mine in the industry here in about 20 minutes i'm gonna do a book review of what honestly might be my favorite nonfiction book of all time. And it's not necessarily any more profound than any other book that's out there. So I'm going to talk about that here, like I said, in about 20, 25 minutes. Real fast, if you haven't already, I've already said this. I, I'm repeating myself. Follow us on Instagram. We're real close. We're about to get 100 followers. But look, that's small for a lot of folks. Uh, I know there are a lot of people that have hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of uh, followers out there. But listen, it's not about the followers and the numbers. It's about the engagement. So we appreciate you as an insider. Let's not waste any more time. Let's get straight into today's news. Funny enough, today's news subject is based out of Denver. (laughs) I, I, I had plugged in nonprofit in Google, saw what type of results were coming up. You're seeing a lot of talks about Hawaii wildfires. No surprise. That's still at the top. Uh, I think the it was like 338 people were missing, and then that number has been dropped about 100 people because I think 100 people have come forward saying, no, I'm here, I'm here. And the, the county of Maui is suing the electric company. So that's, of course, out there. Saw some really good stories in the Midwest, uh, which I thought was really good. A lot of nonprofits giving away things. I saw two organizations, funny enough, that were, one was giving away two cars to veterans. I think that might have been in like Tennessee somewhere. And then another organization gave away, gave a house to a veteran. So listen, I always love when nonprofits just straight up say, here's some, listen, here's some money, here's some tools, you know, hopefully they're, they're taking care of the taxes and all that stuff that can come with it. But then I saw this story and I said, you know what, this is, I think this is pretty perfect. I'm going up to Denver I like entrepreneurial aspects. I started a business. That business failed, lost a little bit of money. I'll talk about that as a horror story one day. But this was out of, out of Denver. Uh, shout out to Denver 7 ABC. 
And the news article was written by a lady by the name of Amy Wadis or Wandis, W-A-D-A-S. Information all in the show notes like I usually do. But this is a really interesting one because it says, and I quote for the title of the article, Denver nonprofit celebrates one year in new building all while changing women's lives every day. So I read the article and it comes with a really good video, very local you all know this. Listen, I love a good local story. A lot of the stories I featured have been national stories, ones that people are talking about from coast to coast. But I love a good story from Kansas City, Knoxville, Tennessee, a story out of Dearborn, Michigan, Sacramento, California. And so Denver, of course, is one of the biggest cities in, in the mountain time zone. Shout out to the mountain time zone. That's where I live. And the news article talks about an organization by the name of the Women's Bean Project, which is an organization in the Mile High City that was started in 1990. That was their ruling year, at least through the IRS. And and the whole premise, and listen, I did my research, did a lot, but from my understanding, like the whole premise is they have a more entrepreneurial twist on the nonprofit space. One of the things we see a lot of times in the nonprofit world is this tendency for nonprofits because they can't hold profit like a, a for-profit organization. We see a lot of nonprofits have to rely on private donations or they have to rely on grants from the government. And I don't have exact percentages and numbers. I'd be very curious to get someone that's high up in some of these uh, Department of Labor Statistics groups. But there's also another aspect of the nonprofit space where you do have the ability to to sell things and use the revenue uh, for your programs. And we see a a lot of nonprofits do do that. That's not a a novel concept. A lot of people know the big organizations that do that, YMCA, Goodwill. I think Habitat for Humanity, to a degree, does a little bit of this, where they might have stores, like thrift stores is a really popular one. I see this with the Animal Humane Society uh, all across the nation where they have a a storefront or they have products that they sell. I've talked in depth about 10,000 villages. If you haven't had a chance to look them up, I'll put them in the show notes as well, where you have a product, whether it's art, sporting goods, food items, uh, resale items, plants, technology. I mean, I've seen it all, to be honest with you. But you have some type of product or you have some type of service and you not only serve the uh, an internal group, because we've seen nonprofits that, like co-ops is a pretty prime example, where you're a co-op, you're a nonprofit, and the people that, say, have housing through your, your co-op, they pay you. But, you know, like that, that's, that's a more internal source where maybe you have in your housing co-op, say, I don't know, say you have 500 residents in the greater Maryland area for your nonprofit. That, that's a little bit different compared to Goodwill, which serves to the public, so to speak. And with this organization, Women's Beans Project, they serve all types of, like, beans. <laughs> it's, 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 I mean, this, this is what it's called, Women's Bean Project, and that's what they're selling. If you go to their website, which they have a really good logo also in the show notes check it out a really good logo like two hands next to like a plant and the plants growing very very good and they serve all sell all types of things dog treats popcorn soups 
chili, cookie mix, cornbread mix, coffees, teas, apparels. If you want something gluten-free, plant-based, kosher, they, they, seems to have a, they seem to have a really good mix of items. And when looking at this video, I appreciated this video from Denver 7 ABC, they kind of show you some of the inner workings of the organization in their warehouse. And you can see the people that are working there putting items in boxes, sealing boxes. I mean, just like a real deal operation. And that's the side of the nonprofit space that I really fucking love. I mean, I really fucking love that. Because, and I'm sure this organization, like any organizations have had their highs, they've had their lows, peaks and valleys. We, we, we've all done it. We, we've all had it, whether you're an organization or a person. But to, to put people in position, and, it, and they mainly focus on women. If you go to their mission statement or look at their summary on their 990, which very good 990. I was looking at their t uh, 2021. They have in their summary, and I quote, uh, it says, you know, briefly describe the organization's mission or most significant uh, activities. And it says, and I quote, to change women's lives by providing stepping stones to self-sufficiency self sufficiency through social enterprise. Couldn't get that C out there. And, and again, this is an organization where they have and people that are employed through the, through the organization. They create products. They sell those products. I'm sure they sell them at festivals. I'm sure that's big that time of the year. Great gifts. I'm sure they're in a couple of retail stores all across the Denver area. And you can buy this stuff online. I mean, seriously, this stuff looks really good. Since I'm gonna be in Denver next week, I'm gonna go see if I can like sneak over to their to their site, maybe check it out for a little bit. N not gonna say too much. Check this out. Be sure to check it out. Looks like they, like I said, they've got a good operation going. It looks like they've got 315 employees, 71 different employees in the year of 2021, 16 governing, uh, voting independent governing body. I mean, just this is a real deal operation. And one of the things I talk about a lot in the nonprofit space, you're going to always know the big players in the nonprofit space. But for this region, for this area, I'm sure a lot of folks know Women's Bean Project, and it looks like they have some really good products. So I, I love the article, some really good insights. Be sure to check it out and watch the two-minute video. I'm going to put that in the show notes as well. They have a really good interview. Again, localized story, but I think you all may enjoy it as Nonprofit Insiders. Can I tell you about my friends over at the Nonprofit Insider Podcast? That's right. You know I had to do my own promo. And what I want you to do right now is open your Instagram app because I know you are on Instagram and follow me at the Nonprofit Insider. We have a slew of high-level posts that are going to improve your life in the nonprofit space in a relaxed and informative fashion. We're talking facts, stats, opinion pieces, exclusive nonprofit horror stories I'm only going to share on Instagram, and some pretty cool pictures from time to time. Ball, we only post once a day, so you don't have to worry about seeing 800 million stories and posts on your feeds from me. So annoying when I see those things. Again, follow me at the Nonprofit Insider on Instagram right now. All right, let's get back to the show.
I was hanging out with a buddy of mine about a week ago. We it's been a while since we linked up. He's got, you know, life stuff, family stuff. He's got a lot going on. So you don't get to hang out with people as much once they have, you know, wives and kids and mothers in laws and you know, people got people are busy. So it's always it's always nice hanging out with them. So had a chance, we linked up, went to a nice brewery. I love a good beer. And I normally don't get a flight, but listen, I had the flight. It's a good idea. This this place got some good beer. So had the flight, had a couple of good drinks. It was nice. And we do chit chat, talk life, all of that jazz. And of course, being in the nonprofit space, we're gonna talk nonprofit. I'm trying to get them to do a horror story, maybe at some point. So we were gonna talk nonprofit. That's like a no-brainer. And he's telling me about the most recent job he had and in a previous job. And so he's telling me about how one of the things he didn't really like about working there was a feeling of being excluded from key conversations or meetings that kind of pertain to his role. And look, one of the things when you're when you're new with an organization, you're trying to find a good path and a good fit, right? Culture is important. There are some organizations, some nonprofits you are more likely to work for and feel comfortable than not. If you're super liberal, you're not going to work at the American Heritage Think Tank group, right? If you're someone that's conservative, you're not working at Planned Parenthood. It's just generally that's not how things align. So there are some examples, and that's a little more political, but there are some examples of how finding a good fit is really important. But for the most part, if you're working with a nonprofit, you're working at an organization, you should feel or have a feeling of, hey, I'm part of the team. Even if there are moments where you think to yourself, you know, we're not buddy buddies. This is still work. We don't have to be best friends. You should still feel included. And he's in fundraising. So he's in a space where, where people, people in the nonprofit space are always talking about, I need more money. I need more money, right? Nonprofits are going to be like that. I'm like that. Just <laughs> I work in nonprofit spaces and it doesn't matter. I'm still always like, I need more money. I got to pay student loans. Uh, I got to pay tuition for my school. So, you know, I got bills to pay. So money is such a big part of society in general. But when you're in fundraising, when you are a part of the group that is legit going out trying to get money to fuel your nonprofit organization, there are going to be a lot of key pieces of information you're going to want to know. He's saying he's not getting a lot of those things in the role that he was just in. And it had me thinking a little bit about how in so much of the nonprofit space, compared honestly to what I've seen in the for-profit world, and I've been in it a little bit, but in the for-profit world, I've mentioned this before, the goal is money. And it's different. If you work at T-Mobile, they just got. They just announced they they got a five thousand uh, person layoff. They're laying seventy seven percent of their workforce off. But if you work at T Mobile in the in the, in the call center, call centers are real big in Albuquerque. If you work in the call center of T Mobile, your goal isn't necessarily to help the organization get more money. You're just let's be honest. You're trying to do your job and get out of there. If you're a partner at a law firm. Your goal is to get better clients, get more money, get a better reputation, and solidify yourself in that particular space of the industry. In the nonprofit space, like any other space, you have a goal. It's a mission. It's a drive to help community. 
but the industry is still a human-based business. And it's a human-based business even more so than many aspects of the nonprofit space or the government space. A lot of times we look at the government space and we say, okay, their job, their role is to serve the society in which pays the taxes, et cetera. In the for-profit, it's you know raise money, but also serve the customer, make them feel good, et cetera. In the nonprofit space, this is truly a human-based style industry where you're working with people very, very close. You're working with donors, board members, clients, and fellow coworkers. So when you work at an organization and you feel like you're not being included, whether, again, it doesn't have to be one of those things where you have to get happy hour every day. You got to invite me to your kid's birthday party. You, you take me to your bar mitzvah. It doesn't have to be anything like that. But if you're not feeling included in that particular sphere that you work in, it's devastating. But on the other side, it's kind of a natural occurrence. <laughs> it's, it's honestly about as natural of a process, like with, with anything. If I work at a plant store, if I work at Home Depot, if I work at a sporting goods store with, with, with a, a, even just a significant amount of people, you're going to align yourself to one degree or another. I remember I worked at an organization one time and it was an office setting. So, you know, we're not digging ditches and we weren't really out and about working with the clients that we worked with to a large degree. We did a lot of behind the scenes back office type stuff to help this nonprofit. But there were eight employees that worked in this office. And even with the eight, just eight employees, four of us would align over there. And then another four of us would align over here. In society and humans and psychology of people, if you ever read any books, you know, I love a good Malcolm Gladwell, uh, Daniel Collinsman, uh, Think and Think Fast and Slow. There's some really good books about how once you get out of a family environment and you get to a place where you're with other people, you know, strangers for the most part, you start to just naturally gravitate towards certain people. So even in this office of eight people, four of us were really aligned and we do more, you know, social events, get together from time to time, but we weren't really including the other four people because they had their own thing, their own group, whether they were together because they worked together more, because they had particular interests more, because they were in a particular department. It, it was any number of those reasons, but just naturally, Four of us over on this side, and then another four of us over on this other side. So the splitting and the alignment of people in the industry is natural, but it can have devastating consequences. And when talking with this friend, talking with my buddy of mine, he was like, I just wasn't able to, I wasn't a part of the cool crowd. I wasn't able to be in those lunch table discussions and listen, he was doing his job, you know, part remotely, part from home, things like that. Uh, but he's like, I, I just can't. I'm not getting that traction. And for whatever reason, because of that, I'm being excluded from conversations. I'm not being informed about meetings. I'm not getting the right pieces of information to, at the 
bare minimum, do my job and move this nonprofit in the same uh, direction toward the mission that they're trying to do. And, and so even though it's a natural thing to have clicks in the nonprofit space, and, and clicks is kind of a, it feels like a mean girls type of word where you think, oh, that's a click. They're over there. They're doing their own thing. Uh, I, I call it like pods, really. <laughs> so it's okay to be a part of a nonprofit pod because if you work at, I'm trying to think of one. If you work at, uh, I'm trying to think of like Mills on Wheels, and you work at one of their bigger locations in I don't know Atlanta, Dallas, whatever the case may be, and you're around 50 or 60 other coworkers, you're just they're just you're you're naturally gonna have some coworkers you groove with more, and some coworkers you're just like you know, listen, they're, they're not my cup of tea. But even in all of that, there are going to be moments where that can have consequences, whether it's uh, the squashing of ideas, the squashing of information. You're seeing the destruction and the breakdown of diversity and inclusion in a lot of for-profit industries. And it's happening in the nonprofit space as well. Might talk about that in a future episode. Poor communication. And it could just be hard for the organization to move in the same direction when, on the one hand, you have a, a, a group of coworkers over here, and they don't really jive or work with these other coworkers, especially if it's in a negative format where it's like, eh, we don't really mess with them. We don't really talk with them. That can just be bad, bad, bad. For this episode, I wanted to do a rapid fire books. And for me, when I first started really getting into determining what books I was interested in as a teenager, I for some reason kind of gravitated more towards the neuroscience, psychology, sociology type of vibe of books. I wanted to understand people a little bit more. And, and to be honest, when I was in, getting into the nonprofit space and I was starting to do volunteering as a teenager, that's really what I was looking for. I was looking for connection. I was looking to meet with other humans and connect, especially being in a new city, being in a new state. It was just a new opportunity for me. So as I was entering my teenage years, there were just so many uh, avenues for me to just read about books based around how people grow, how their brains work, how they uh, work in tribes and communities. And so this was maybe around 2003, 2004, I start getting into that particular vibe. And I was reading books like Malcolm Glad Gladwell. He was probably one of the first books. I think it was like the tipping point that really was like, oh, wow, I kind of I kind of like this vibe of the nonfiction space. So I was reading like Malcolm Gladwell. I was reading some Thomas Friedman, The World is Flat, which is a really good one. Uh, some Adam Grant. He's not really as much of like a neuroscience. He's a, a professor at the Wharton School of Business, I think for the University of Pennsylvania. I was reading some Lisa Burnett, How Emotions Are Made. Uh, that, that came out not so long ago. Uh, Mariano Sigmund, just like a lot of work as it relates to how the brain works, neuroplasticity, like that kind of vibe. Uh, so much so that even like I was at a party, I was actually at a, at a Christmas party uh, back in, you know, a couple months ago. And I have a friend, he's a licensed clinical social worker. And I was talking to him about, you know, how I like books. He has an impressive library. And he said, here, you should check out this book. And so he gave me a book called The Brain That Changes Itself by uh, Norman Dugy, Dodgy. Pretty good book. I just started reading it, so I still got some time. Uh, I'm only like 35, 
50 pages in or something like that. But I'm reading all these books about the brain and how it works. And I'm like really enjoying it. And I remember one day, this was maybe back in 2017, 2018, uh, I was at my local library and I saw that, you know, if you go, ever go to a library, they have like the staff selection, right? Books that the staff have enjoyed and that they recommend. And I remember like walking past one of these little, you know, towers of books and I saw one that had an owl on the front with its head kind of tilted to the side. And I said, huh, that's an interesting cover. And I walked over and the book uh, was named Curious, The Desire to Know and Why Your Future Depends on It by Ian Leslie. And I saw the book and I said, you know, I kind of filmed through it a little bit. I said, huh, it's short. I mean, it's less than 200 pages. I think it's like 185 pages, something like that. I said, it's short, looks pretty good. And that was the vibe that I was still in, still reading so many books about the brain and about people. I said, you know what? I think I'm gonna pick this up. So I picked it up, took it home. Y'all, let me tell you, I ate that book alive. I think it might be one of the fastest reads I've ever done. Cause normally I'm kind of a slow reader. Like I'll pick up a book and I like to digest it. Like I don't wanna read fast. I don't wanna eat fast. I don't wanna do things too fast. I wanna be a part of the moment. I wanna enjoy it. I wanna take it in. So when it comes to reading books, I enjoy like reading a chapter, sitting on it, reading a chapter, sitting on it. But I think I picked this book up and I think I, I devoured it in like eight days, which is fast for me when you have kids, you got, you know, work, got family, got all that stuff going on. So I picked it up. I mean, I devour that book like real, real quick. And one of the things that I, I appreciated about the book, because this is a book and honestly, it shot up very quickly to probably being the number one rated book I've ever read. And I've read a lot of books, mainly nonfiction. I haven't picked up a, a fiction book since I was in high school, maybe college when I was signed to, to read a, a fiction book. I've been reading nonfiction books now for you know close to 12 years exclusively. And so when I, when I finished the book, I was like, this might be the best book I've ever read. Not that it is the best book ever written, but sometimes you, you meet a book or you come across something at the right time in your life, right? You meet a person, you fall in love, and they become your person because you cross paths with them with the right time. You get a car, it becomes your car, and it serves you well at the right time, right? There's just so many instances where something just crosses your path, and it may not be the best thing ever, but for you, it becomes you know the best thing. And so that's what this book was for me. Real short, easy to read. And the book argues basically, for, for those of you that pick it up, and I think you should totally pick it up. It's easy to find. You can get it on thrift books or maybe you can get it on Amazon. I don't really know. But it's, it's easy to read. And the book, Ian Leslie, the author, he basically argues that the digital age is trumping, is, is stomping on curiosity. And he cites, you know, iPhones and smart pads and just technology in general makes it, our lives just so easy that we don't have curiosity. But he says the number one thing that causes our curiosity to kind of be waned compared to previous generations and previous uh, dynasties of life is really the internet. And throughout the book, he really discusses how the internet gives us answers almost too fast. 
You know what? He doesn't even argue it almost gives the answers too fast. He argues it does give us answers too fast. And he wrote the book. The, the book was published back in 2014. So, you know, it's about eight years, nine years ago. But he basically, he, he, he basically talks about how so much of the internet dev- prevents us from having like an information uh, curiosity gap. And so he gives like a kind of a good example. And I'm paraphrasing. Like, imagine you're on one side of a cliff and you're trying to get to the other side of the cliff. How do you get there, right? The divide can feel really large. And sometimes you may not get to that divide of getting an answer that you want, of getting insights to information that you really desire, right? But he says the internet bridges that gap. It almost bridges it in such a way, it's like a rocket ship, that you're going from one side of the platform to the other side fast. And he gives probably one of the best examples of his argument in really a very simplistic format, and it's not even his own argument. He talks about, and this is on page 50 of his book. If you pick it up, you can jump to it, whatever the case may be. He talks about on page 50 how there's there's a, a, a kid by the name of Jack. Jack is nine years old, and he's in his final assignment in the third grade. And the research or the project he's asked to do for his third grade project is to research anacondas. So he's telling the story about how Jack spends like three hours on the internet. He's doing a detailed report on uh, what the anaconda is the biggest snake in the world. The anaconda is semi-aquatic. It eats uh, aquatic, excuse me. The the, uh, the anaconda eats goats and and ponies and it's big. You know, all these things. And so the, 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 the kid is really proud. So he goes to his dad and he says, dad, uh, did you know that the world's largest snake is the anaconda? And the dad goes like, huh, you know, you know, prompting, you know, giving that kid some support or whatever. And the dad goes, what's the second largest snake in the world? And so the book goes on to say that this nine-year-old frowns, turns away, goes into his bedroom. Again, this is in 2014, turns around, goes into his bedroom, types on the computer comes back and has an answer for what the world's second largest snake is. And it's a really great example of, again, that curiosity divide, how you can get the information, how you can get the answer so fast compared to previous generations in life that it doesn't, it doesn't prompt curiosity in your brain. It's not a hole that is unfulfilled, right? And, and it's super funny because the story of this nine-year-old named Jack is actually he's the son of a New York Times writer by the name of Ben Greenman. So Ben, he's working at the New York Times, and he's like, huh, I think there's a story here. So he goes on to write a story for the New York Times. This is back in 2010. I'll put that in the show notes. You can check it out. Easy read. It's like two, three minutes in the New York Times. You don't even need to go through our paywall, which is really nice. But Ben Greenman, the author, tells this story in his New York Times article. And he talks about how for so many people myself included, growing up in the 90s, if my dad or my mom asked me what the second largest snake in the world is, I couldn't go on my iPad. I couldn't go on my phone. I couldn't go on the internet. I had to go to the library. I had to check out an encyclopedia. If the encyclopedia didn't have the answer, I would have to maybe go to the librarian. I would have to check out multiple books. I'd have to read books specifically on snakes. And he goes on to basically say, 
And he goes on to say that there's just so many instances of this type of phenomenon happening in the world where because you can get the answer so fast, it doesn't bug you, right? You know those moments when like you're in a grocery store or you're in like a department store and you you hear a song and you go, dang, what's that song? And you're like thinking about it, thinking about it. It used to be a time if you heard a song, you would think about it for hours on end until eventually you just stop thinking about the song. You were like, you know what? Forget it. I don't know the answer. You try to hum it maybe to your partner or maybe to your friends or your kids or whatever like that. And you can't get the humming down just right. And you never forgot the song. Now you have like what Shazam. I think that's the name of it. Or uh, you could just like type in uh, the lyrics and you get the answer. So your curiosity is stopped in that particular respect. And so for those of you curious, the second largest snake is the uh, ret reticulated python i did not know that so there you go but the book is really good it's very fascinating if you get a chance go ahead and pick up the book it's very easy let me know some of your thoughts if you pick up this book on the instagram page you can hit me up on the the uh look i'm butchering already you can hit me up on the nonprofit insider very simple we got that in the show notes let us know if you enjoy the book and then give me some book recommendations as well i'm always reading uh, I do audiobooks a little bit, like maybe 10% of the time, but the other 90% I'm straight reading books. So send some to me.